welcome to The Doctor Diaries, a podcast which will take you behind the scenes of the intriguing medical world. Join me, Hanya Rovesby, as I chat to our guests who will take us through their insights, experiences and ideas as an expert, thought leader and trailblazer in this space. Welcome to The Doctor Diaries. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Ian Katz. Ian is a leading expert in skin cancer diagnosis and treatment, entrepreneur, angel investor, and speaker. Ian, after his basic medical training at the University of Cape Town, qualified as a pathologist in Australia in 1996. Since then, he has become one of Australia's leading experts in the diagnosis and treatment of skin cancer. He's a senior pathologist at Southern Sun Pathology. My introduction to Ian was through his entrepreneurship. So I was really excited today to explore the doctor entrepreneur together with Ian. Ian, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. My pleasure. My pleasure. So Ian, it's actually been my pleasure to cross paths with you in many ways through business um, over the last few years, but I'm really keen to hear your story and how this all began. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, I I grew up in Cape Town and uh, what's quite interesting is that uh, growing up in Cape Town, I always knew I was going to leave the country. Oh, that's interesting. So it's interesting. So I think I think in those days in the seventies and eighties in South Africa, the future was was pretty grim, and and, and I, our, our family was always talking about leaving the country, which is quite interesting. My dad was an obstetrician and gynaecologist, so uh, we always had medicine in the family. Um, he was always rushing about and going about, uh, you know, to deliver babies at all hours, and he it was in a single man practice, which is quite interesting. So he never really had anyone. He was on call twenty four hours a day, seven days a week. Oh, that's a massive load. <laughs> and um, so I grew up with that. Then uh, I did very well at school. Um, so one gets to the end of school, and then you think, uh, like, what are you going to do with your life? And because I had the medicine in the family, and I essentially don't know what you're going to do. And that's essentially I got into medicine because I really didn't think of anything else I could do with my marks at school and the family. So I got into medicine, did, did my basic medical training at Cape Town. And then it was always really quite interesting pathology. And I think as with most things in life, I had a really interesting and exciting pathology lecturer who inspired me. And I think that's actually quite important. And this guy, uh, his name was, I think his name was Berman, actually, uh, if he's listening to this 30 years later. <laughs> you never know. The yeah, yeah. Worldwide, so who knows? And in fact, there were two Bermans in the pathology department at Cape Town. And, and, and you get inspired by mentors in life. And, and, um, and we had really interesting pathology lecturers. And, and that's what inspired me to go into pathology, actually. And so then... We left, uh, we were always looking at going somewhere. I left and actually went to live in Philadelphia for almost two, for two years. And I did a, a research fellowship in endocrine, endocrine pathology, uh, in bone metabolism with a really interesting doctor who's an endocrinologist, a guy called Solly Epstein. And he was, a again, a very interesting, quirky guy that was also a really good mentor. And he was helping uh, people get into America, get green cards in, in America. And, and I did a lot of research there. We, we did an amazing amount of research on, on bone metabolism in rats. Wow. <laughs> and then I uh, got engaged and married to 
my current wife, which is good. And, and oh, the current one. <laughs> current one. <laughs> the current one. And, and her family had actually come to Australia. Ah, was she and, an American? No, she's that's Cape Townian as well. And I'd gone okay. with that out with her on and off over many, <laughs> on and off actually over many. Oh, long term relationship, right? <laughs> in South Africa. And then when I went to America, she actually came to Australia with her family to Sydney and then we got engaged in the middle of the year and she came to live with me in America for a year and then we decided to come and live in Australia. That's how I got to Australia. Oh, wow. So it was love. Love that book. <laughs> yeah, not medicine. Not medicine. Yeah, it was love. And then, uh, yeah, so uh, I did my pathology training in at uh, North Shore Hospital. I was lucky enough because I'd had a really good uh, background in, in research, a lot of publications in endocrine pathology um, and I, I was lucky enough to get into pathology training and I actually was going to focus on chemical pathology mm. and I did the first few years in chemical pathology which is chemistry, working in the lab, um, machines, things like that and, and I, I think I came soon came to the realisation that the jobs in chemical pathology weren't really that widespread and, and that interesting so then I swapped over and did um, anatomical pathology mm. and histopathology and actually was one of the, the few there was a, a there was a quirk in the College of Pathologist uh, registration for a couple of years where you could do two joint part ones. So uh -huh. I did a joint and a redone a part one in in in, in chemistry, and then I'd a couple I only needed like two or three years to do a part one in histo, and I was essentially one of the only people in Australia that joint qualified in chemistry and histopathology, and then they changed it so no one else can do it. Oh, wow. So you had that little window of opportunity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was actually very lucky. So yeah. no one knows actually what to call me because I'm not a general pathologist. And this is something that, that Medicare actually has always uh, struggled with as well, actually, because I'm, I'm not a general pathologist because I haven't done all the different types of pathology. And I'm not a specialist histopathologist um, because I've, I've only done the part one in histopathology. So um, there's a little quirk in my background that no one's ever been able to put their finger on. <laughs> But you've managed to work in pathology here, and, yeah, and yeah. no, no. I mean, I mean, I'm a fully qualified pathologist. I'm no, no, I know. Little, little it's a little quirk and little niche. <laughs> yeah. So you started uh, working as a pathologist, and then I, I suppose would be interesting. At what stage did your business entrepreneurship come about? Early on, or did you work for a while? I think I was a little bit of an entrepreneurial background. Um, uh, funny enough, I used to work with uh, pathologists when I was a registrar at North Shore Hospital and <laughs> I always used to go and uh, buy them vegetarian burgers in our time and uh, sell them to all the different pathologists and, and everyone that thought, well, this is so entrepreneurial that I could go and buy vegetarian hamburgers and sell them to everyone in the lab. And then that was my first taste of, of entrepreneurship in the, in, the <laughs> in the pathology industry was selling the pathologist vegetarian hamburgers. <laughs> Funny. It's like the high school entrepreneur that starts yeah. selling things out of their locker. <laughs> yeah, and that was that was my when I was uh, I don't know, I was probably twenty five or something, selling selling vegetarian burgers to everyone. And then I um and then I I worked in a small lab out in Western Sydney when I'd qualified. And then as I was doing it, I was focusing mainly on skin and and GI pathology because that's what you generally do as a new pathologist. That means the majority of the samples are small biopsies, things like that, and. And that's really in the sort of mid-late 90s. And, and there was this interesting phenomenon starting in terms of skin cancer, uh, in terms of uh, more GPs were becoming more qualified in skin cancer. They were starting up chains of skin cancer clinics. They were putting together groups of skin cancer doctors. And there were a couple of groups of skin cancer doctors. And uh, what was quite interesting is that they were interested in pathology but didn't really know much about pathology. So I assisted a couple of the groups of uh, skin cancer 
doctors setting up their pathology practice. And this was the first bits of vertical integration in the skin cancer industry where you have this clinics and the pathology lab owned by the, the same entity in a, in a perfectly legal way. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, that started in the, in the late 90s, really, when the, the skin right. cancer industry was just getting started. It's really, that's when it was getting started. And I suppose yeah. there was a blur there, wasn't there, as, as in many specialties when GPs start entering into the foray of the specialist. Yeah, yeah, and and there was there was a there was a fight actually. I mean, the, the dermatologists and the plastic surgeons thought that the GP skin cancer doctors were taking over their turf and and everything like that. But at the end of the day, there weren't enough doctors to you know specialists skin uh, special dermatologists and and plastic surgeons to deal with the the increasing epidemic of, of of skin cancer in the community, and 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 the and the GPs were actually. Uh, performing a, a really good function. And then at the end of the day, I think one's, what one's realised is there's that essentially 90% of all skin cancer work could and should be done by GPs in the community, in the skin cancer clinics, in the GP practices. And just the, the sort of more complex stuff should really go to the, the, to the, the specialists. And I think the specialists in Australia do realise that now. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, of course, the demand was great. It was even with the government campaigns with the slip, slop, slap, yeah. Um, look after your skin. Uh, the, the general patient consumer became more aware of the dangers of yeah. the skin. They were being educated. So the demand to see a, a medical professional was high. So yeah. you were, when you were coming into it, it was it the perfect storm, I suppose? When yeah. Yeah. Living in a country where there's so much sun exposure and a lot of immigrants <laughs> aren't designed for this amount of sun and the intensity of it. Yeah. Yeah, so 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 I worked as a as a, in one of the first sort of multi group practices, and one one day I I, uh, I set up the lab for them, and, and one day I had a bit of spare time in the afternoon. I said, why not go into one of the clinics and see what they're doing? And um, I started going into one of the clinics in Sydney and and seeing what they're doing, and actually. The stuff they're doing is just sort of, you know, at that point, and still is, you know, most of the stuff is just ge- sort of general GP stuff, examining skin, using a dermatoscope, taking small biopsies, small shaves, things like that. And I said, you know, I'm a GP as well, and, I, you know, I can do this. And actually that's when I started doing skin checks and doing biopsies and, and shaves and things as well. And what was quite interesting is that as a specialist pathologist, I thought it was actually an extremely good service to actually have pathologists doing the skin, looking at the skin and actually doing the pathology themselves because mm. it's actually an amazing uh, clinic of pathologic correlation. So I was essentially unique in that, in that I actually examined patients myself and and did the pathology as well. Yeah. And, and, that, and that actually was, I believe, a, a really good service, although the College of Pathologists may have had a different view on that matter. <laughs> Uh, well, you're definitely were an outlier at that time, and uh, <laughs> well, the thing is, the change happens through outliers, which is interesting. So, when you were going through that, so how did that evolve and develop? So, when I was working for one of the groups, as you do, you have a little bit of a difference of opinion, and then you sort of go out by yourself and you set up your own clinic. And I set up a Hornsby Skin Cancer Clinic as my first clinic. Mm. I was like in 2001 or 2002, and uh, started seeing my own patients, and and then. Had, put up a little lab in the back room, which was like, you know, the size of a small office and you have a little lab and a small process and you have a technician who comes in the evening and just does, you know, a few slides a day and that's how it started off. And um, then you, uh, a few doctors approach you and say, I want to come and see skin cancer and things like that. And and then it grows bigger and then you think, oh, maybe I'll start another clinic somewhere and you have bring in a few partners 
And that's how it grows. And that's where it's grown now to uh, 30 clinics and a lab that's seeing, you know, 15% of all skin cancers in Australia, but, uh, you know, majority owned by private equity now. Mm. And uh, lots of exciting things happening in that. Uh, yeah. So uh, what are the names of your clinics, these skin cancer clinics? Okay, so they're now called, I mean, they've changed their names a few times over <laughs> the years. <laughs> they're now called Sun Doctors. Okay. Sun Doctors Skin Cancer Clinics. I think the original name was Southern Sun Skin Cancer Clinics, but I think the Queenslanders didn't like the two using the term Southerners. Ah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we now call them Sun Doctors Skin, and the lab's called Southern Sun Pathology still. So you've got 27. Um, I know, there's about 30, 31 clinics now. Uh, yeah. 31 now. Oh, my goodness. Have like you still yeah. got a growth strategy in regards to the Sun Doctor Clinics? Yeah, so we get we we have we have uh, we we have a lot of uh, we're, we're growing our own clinics. We also get obviously a lot of work from outside doctors who know our reputation and send us skin cancer samples from outside. Uh, when, when when do you think this podcast is going to be aired? By the way, if you don't mind me asking, uh, probably in three weeks' time. Probably. Okay, that's quite interesting because I think the one of the final stages of our journey may be almost complete around then. Oh, <laughs> so I'm getting a sneak preview. So getting a sneak preview. So it's been in the news uh, this week know. that uh, there is a proposal to merge our lab and our business with Australian Clinical Labs. Congratulations, and, that's fantastic. And, and then... Uh, uh, the proposal is that there is an IPO in May. So essentially, that's the end of the cycle of the journey of, of, of this whole 20-year process, really. Yeah, that, that is amazing. So tell me, Ian, as a, a business consultant in the healthcare space, doctors aren't trained to be business persons or entrepreneurs. How have you gained your knowledge to know how to do all this and see the opportunities and act on them? I think that's what would be really fascinating because you've had the medical training you don't yeah. come from a business family, so as to speak, with your father as an ONG, unless yeah. your mum was a businesswoman, which we haven't heard about. Uh, but yeah, where where have you gained this business acumen? No, my mum was a was a was a librarian actually. So, so okay. Um, okay. So she wasn't uh, she wasn't business. What's quite interesting, I think the 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 moral or the the learning that I've had over the years is I'm still I think not a great business person. I'm not a detailed orientated business person but I think I've taken on partners over the years mm. that are much more business oriented I've taken on uh, I've sold parts of the business um, I'm, I'm now actually a very minor shareholder in the entire business mm. but I think what I've realized is that, that you've got to take on people who know how to grow the business how to how to organize the the finances I, I, you know, my, before I had a business consultant to help me organize all the financial details properly. Uh, I took on a partner maybe 10 years ago who, I, who, who knew about growing these businesses, who'd done it before, a doctor who's an entrepreneur. And then he had contacts and then he uh, pushed the business. So what's quite interesting is that he was a really good, I uh, better not mention his name, but... Uh, yeah, let's keep him a little secret. <laughs> no, no, but uh, I think he was the most amazing negotiator as a doctor. And I, I have the most amazing time for, for him because he, he can negotiate so well. Mm. And I think that's, I don't think that's something you can teach people is how to negotiate. And that's something, and what's quite interesting is when he bought into the business, he negotiated so well. 
and that's fine. And and he, he wasn't someone who who screwed you. But, you know, he negotiated in front of you. You knew what was coming, mm. and and he didn't screw you behind the back. You knew he negotiated to your last cent, but you knew that it was in front of you. It wasn't hidden. Yeah. Well, that's <laughs> the art of the the master negotiator, making feel like the other party has won. As yeah, well, I think and then and then and then what's quite interesting is when we sold to the private equity, he negotiated the deal, but he used the same arguments on the opposite side because he was <laughs> increasing the value. There you go. Yes, it's interesting. So you, you essentially such a good negotiator, you can argue both sides of the deal. Well, that he's a very uh, he's a, a unicorn. I'm going to say too, a doctor, yeah. negotiator, <laughs> businessman. But I think what I find is. He's obviously got it worked out, but uh, so many specialists I work with is, um, you may have experienced this too, is it takes you a while to really realise your unique value proposition that you are a high-value commodity. All yeah. specialists are <laughs> very high-value so that really the negotiation should be hard, you know, yeah. for you. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. There's so few of you. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So yeah. Yeah. Very so interesting, yeah. That's the really in the entire journey. Well, that's brought us to here, but the, you have got other strings to your bow. I see that you've published a book on Amazon. Yeah, I, I've been trying to work out how many of copies I've sold. Though. Let me just say <laughs> that I think I've. <laughs> Understanding Skin Cancer Guide Patients ebook. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I think I've made about $20 over 10 years on sales. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're not going to retire on that. But looking at your skills and interests, you know, you've got that entrepreneurship slash medical sort of uh, thing. And, and a part of your thing is that not only you are entrepreneur, but you're an angel investor. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me about that. So, yeah, so I've really been interested in, in startups for the last maybe 10 years as well. And I, I think I've started investing through Sydney Angels and then through through different private equity deals and uh, and through private deals and, I think it's a very difficult. It's very difficult to 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 be a successful angel investor, and uh, some of the deals have done well, and some haven't done that well, and most haven't done that well. Um, some have just sort of petered along um, without doing much, and it's just been interesting. I've struggled to work out how to add value to a lot of these deals, and I think I'm trying to focus more on, on nowadays, I'm trying to focus more on skin and skin cancer pathology related deals where I think I can add a little bit more value. And I think that's the, the trick with these angel investing is to try and focus on, on rather than sort of scattergunning in every different industry and taking people's advice and things like that. It's just to try and focus on on things where you can add introductions and, and add uh, intellectual capital and, and things like that rather than just investing in anything. So that's what I'm trying to focus on, on more at the moment. I, I think some of the ones that have done badly have been the ones that I've been invested in early where there hasn't really been a lot of technical technical co-founder support and and, and, and and that's been one of the one of the learnings is if you are going to invest in these, there has to be a really strong technical co-founder, a strong technician on board who can do the a strong CTO who can do the coding themselves. As soon as you start having to outsource this stuff, it's it's really tough. Oh, it is. And, uh, you know, bringing, having control of that external um, tech um, to something that's essentially going to be the product is, it's fraught with frustration and dangers yeah. as well. But well, it's yeah. interesting to look at what you are investing in and where medicine is heading is in that tech space. So, yeah. I mean, you've invested for a long time. What What are your thoughts on where medicine is heading in terms of tech? 
and moving forward. Look, I'm quite um, I'm quite sort of conflicted at the moment. I mean, if you look at things like Teladoc and telemeds and stuff in, in in America, and Teladoc's obviously done extremely extremely well in terms of the share market over the last year or two. <laughs> Patients, I think, really like it, but I'm not sure how much doctors like it. I think it's still got to be said, um, you know, what proportion of cases can actually be done via telemedicine? I'm interested to know that, and I'm surprised it's never actually been calculated. I think it's something that could be really easily calculated, um, yeah. but I've never seen any literature on it. I think that's going to be interesting. I think obviously big data, and what's been one of my focuses over the last few years is, is, is data in terms of skin cancer, in terms of skin cancer images, in terms of skin cancer uh, whole slide imaging. I think there are amazing opportunities in, in big data and medicine. And I think one of the one of the things that I I really have found is that on the one hand you have these data scientists mm. who, who who read technical and speak a, a language, and on the other hand you have these doctors and 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 physicians who who speak a very different language. And actually, it's being involved in these startups and these um, companies over the last couple of years it's very difficult to bring those people together that the, so they can actually understand them and understand each other. Mm. Um, there's very, very few people in the world that can bring the data scientists language and understanding together with the medical doctors understanding and, and language. Mm. There'd probably be less than 20 people in the world who can do that. And, and I'm, not, I'm not one of them, but that to me is going to be the future is bringing together these people in a much more coherent way. Uh, a couple of years ago, I started. I was thought I'm going to I'm going to be one of those people. And I started doing a, a sort of masters at the, at the university in <laughs> in terms of data science, and I wanted to just start doing that blockchain, the data blockchain. Yeah, but I, I petered out because it was. Well, I, I I just found it was just difficult to get it in. But I think there is an op- there, there there that is one of the issues is is bringing together people from different sides so they can understand each other. I mean, I speak to I'm doing a few projects on on. On, on digital pathology and whole slide imaging, and it's really difficult to get scientists to understand, a data scientist to understand uh, pathology. Yeah, I think it's there is a sort of a divide, and I found that through my experiences as well. In as you said, the data scientists working with say pathology, or even investors working say I've had exposure to investing into medical technologies or science, because I think investing in medical technology, science, uh, med tech, so forth, there needs to be an element of patience because there's so many variables that a traditional investor or a traditional uh, data analyst is quite black and white. But with medicine, there's so many variables, patient, doctor, the disease, you need to take time to trial things and those sorts of things. It's still, that's probably why it's still at its infancy. What do you think? Yeah, so what you haven't added into your list of who pays for it, yeah, <laughs> well, it's the payers that I'm saying yeah. an interesting so, thing because the investors, traditional investors want a return, yeah. for, you know, a business that's going to grow. But for an investor in the medical space, they almost need that sort of understanding yeah. that there's time required to, to get your return. Yeah, and it takes a long time to get medical data, medical startups going and, 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 and you know, ethics approvals and studies and things like that. So it takes a long time to, to mm. approvals, FDA, TJ approvals, things like that can take a very long time to get these things going. And then, and then as I was saying with the payers, I mean, I think one of the big things with this is that you have patients, you have doctors, you have uh, insurance companies, you have, you have hospitals and, and, and everyone's spending everyone else's money and, and you never know who's going to eventually pay for, for all this new technology that you're coming up with. 
Because uh, the people using it are not the ones who are paying. No, exactly. But I agree with you that this is a unique space to be have that knowledge as the doctorpreneur because, you know, to have an understanding of the both sides, the business and the clinical, it's a unique thing moving forward. So it's, it's a very interesting thing, yeah. yeah. Ah, so um, if I was to say, you know, the IPO goes through, Ian, um, you crack that bottle of champagne, it's all very exciting, but you're not the type of person that's going to sit still. I can't see that happening. So what's next? What What's next on the horizon for you? You know, I, I, I took a few days off last year, just, you know, staycation during, during COVID and everything. And, and after, I think, after two days, my wife said to me, you're never retiring. <laughs> never, I cannot imagine that. <laughs> you never, so go back to work, go and do something. So, look, at the end of the day, I'm, I, I still love what I'm doing. I love looking at slides. I look at them, uh, you know, every day and I actually don't see myself ever stopping, you know, looking down the microscope or whether it's looking down the microscope or looking on the screen at digital slides. I think that's pretty much going to continue forever. And it's what's in, what's good is that, is that it's, it's a type of job where you can come in for a few hours a day or, you know, half a day or something and do however many slides that you want and then go home. And I actually really enjoy doing it still. I think I'm efficient at it. I think I'm good at it. I think I know how to, I think, What's quite interesting in this is that, is that it's what something you can't teach young pathologists is it's how you it's not what your diagnosis is actually irrelevant it's how you the terminology you use and how you write your reports is actually much more important than the actual diagnosis mm. and I somehow seem to be able to relate to the doctors who are referring in terms of writing reports that they can understand and not phone me to find out what's going on yeah. I think that's actually the subtlety of what you can't teach a, a pathologist who's reporting cases is, is, is that and I think I'm good at that so I'm never going to never going to retire I'm all, I work as a you know as a contractor in the business probably forever um, I'm still doing a few different AI projects and and, and data projects and things and uh, which is quite interesting I like to play golf three four times a week maybe um, I spend time with the family, so um, nothing's ever going to slow down, really. No, I can't imagine. Since I've known you, I can't imagine that. I'm always seeing you do at least three things at once, Ian. Quite amazing. <laughs> well, Ian, thank you so much for your time today and the insights to to your journey and and what you're doing, and it's it's fascinating. So, thank you for your time on the Doctor Diaries, and I look forward to continue working with you. Thanks so much. It's been it's been a lot of fun, and I look forward to to working with you. <laughs> All right, thank you. Thank you for listening to The Doctor Diaries. You can find out more about our amazing guests on our website, hanyaroversby.com.au or join our Instagram page, Doctor Diaries Podcast, to find out more about our podcasts. We look forward to you joining us again.